Well, welcome to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. Uh, I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs, and today is a special service, as you've heard. It is Campus Sunday. We do this every year. Uh, We come together and celebrate what God is doing among our young people on the campus, not only the college campus, but high school and middle school campus as well. Uh, This Campus Sunday, we're doing something a little bit different because I'm up here talking to you. Uh, We've chosen to have me tell the story of the past of our campus ministry, the story of what God has been doing since the beginning of our campus ministry and our church. But I think it would be extremely lacking to stand up here on the pulpit of God and to tell you any story outside of the context of the story. In other words, more than just the beginning of our church, I think we need to go back to the beginning. The beginning itself. I think understanding what's been happening here in this brief moment in time, the last decade or so, and, and, and really being able to connect with what God is doing in the future hinges on your ability to understand the story of stories. And that's what Jesus is doing in his eternal word, in his eternal plan. John chapter 1 verse 1 starts out with this sweeping statement that cuts between cultures. And it says, in the beginning was the word. Most of us don't have the cultural context to feel the tension and the audacity and the danger of such a statement. This statement simultaneously alienated or redeemed Jews and Greeks. John wrote to an audience of both, essentially. And in saying, in the beginning, that would have struck a chord with Jews because that was the most sacred of their statements that would go all the way back to Genesis 1 that for hundreds of years, Jews had read the Septuagint, the Greek form of their Torah, and heard the words, in the beginning. But he says, instead of in the beginning, God, he clarifies who God is by going ahead and and putting some tension on Greeks by using the most sacred of words. In the beginning was the word. And the word that he uses for the word is a special and sacred word in Greek called the logos. In the beginning was the logos. And so in one statement, the Apostle John is clarifying all of history and saying the Jewish history, the Greek history, the world's History and hopes are summed up in this statement. In the beginning was the word, the logos. The logos in the Greek simply meant the perfect. And it was so sacred that to misuse this word could get you killed, and it did get you killed, as we see from Christian history. You can't use the perfect, especially after Plato, hundreds of years after Plato. You can't use this word to refer to material things, and you definitely can't use this word to describe a person. That's just what John did in the beginning was the word to share that Jesus is the essence of all stories. He's the resolution of everything ever told or hoped for. He's saying it right at the start. In the beginning was the word. Now that statement has served in the last few thousand years to clarify and redeem culture after culture after culture. Take back cultures on on every continent. 
for what it should be to return relationships and people and worship and living and light to what it should be among people. In the beginning was the Word. And yet in recent years, especially in, in Western culture, there's been a huge effort to try to deconstruct this story, this assertion of the beginning and the logos and the Word. To Really to deconstruct objective truth in general, there's been this effort. And in essence, to kind of let's let's kind of respin, recreate the story, not around the perfect, but around the imperfect. Around us, us humans. I think the the influence of humanism in our culture in the last few hundred years can't be overstated. It can't be overstated. It's 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 in our mindsets, the effect on us. We think that the, the story itself is all about us. We're the center of the story. After all, I am special. I am special. Look at me. Look at me. Did anyone else sing that song growing up? Any other millennials? I'm, I'm at the front end of that. No one else? Okay, I'll proceed forward. The only problem is, is even though I'm special, I'm also left disillusioned and depressed when I realized that this story isn't cutting it. There's a greater story that I was born for, and I'm selling myself short when, it, when, it, when I arrange my thoughts around me and my story around me. There's a greater story than the story of me. Would you rather be a huge part of something small or a small part of something huge? The Logos. There is a greater story. It's not the story of you, and it's not the story of me, and it's not even the story of us. It's the story of him, the perfect, the Logos. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Today I want to point to a few important truths about who Jesus is in hopes that you'll see him for who he is just a little bit more today that you'll be able to glorify him more like he deserves, and that you'll see yourself and your story and our story in light of his story. First thing that I want to really highlight from what we've already read in John chapter 1, and then we'll proceed on in the chapter, is that Jesus is preeminent. I'll explain what that word means. But it says right at the, right at the get that it says, in the beginning was the word, and Speaking of Jesus being this person. The audacity of saying that Jesus is the word. He's preeminent. I, I don't think it's, I could have used like maybe a, a word that we normally use, but let me explain this word instead because I don't think another word is sufficient. Because Jesus isn't just the start. He's also the finish. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's the alpha and the Omega. He's preeminent. He stands beneath and he stands above. He's the foundation of all beauty, all truth, all joy. He's the essence of all happiness and peace. He's preeminent. He's not just before. He's after. He's everything in between. In the beginning was him. At the end, he'll be worshiped forever and ever and ever. He's preeminent. And this is why it's important for you to understand this, because you'll never find your place in the world until you see yourself through the lens of the Word. 
Jesus is the Logos. He's preeminent. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. He says, I love Christianity, and in essence, I love Jesus, like I love the sun, he said. He says, not just because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. The sun is an infinitely massive and bright and hot thing around which everything else has no choice but to orbit. And likewise, your life is only in right orbit, in right equilibrium, in right resolution, in right peace, when you're orbiting around the radiance of the S-O-N, sun. When your life is built around his story, around the perfect, around your, 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 your beauties can be colored by him. Your imperfections can be burned and healed and purified by him. There's no other story that fits outside the preeminence of Jesus. In him is life, it says here, and the, is, the life is, not just was, but is the light of men and women and boys and girls. Jesus is preeminent. Number two thing I see from, from this is Jesus is unstoppable. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me just give you a little bit more context to build on that from what I read and that goes before this, and what I, I'm kind of cheating here. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. What comes after it is not only has the darkness not overcome it, but the darkness cannot and will not and will never overcome the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus is unstoppable. He's immutable. He's undimmable. His radiance cannot be put out or snuffed out. Jesus is unstoppable. Floyd Mayweather has never been beaten. But Jesus Christ can never be beaten. He never will be. Jesus is unstoppable. As children of the light, if you are redeemed by Jesus, you're made new. Like what happened to me through a campus ministry when I was 14 years old and some students preached to me about the God I thought I knew and I came to know him. If you're redeemed, you're a child of the light. I'm going to explain a little bit more as we carry on about how that works. But if you're a child of the light, you're unstoppable because you and Jesus is an overwhelming majority. And you don't fear the darkness. You don't compete against the darkness. You just conquer it. I mean, that's what light does. When you stick light in a dark room, darkness just doesn't exist anymore. They don't coexist. There's light, and then by virtue of the light's presence, darkness is not a thing anymore. We conquer the light. We're not afraid of the, the, we conquer the darkness. We're not afraid of the darkness. We don't compete with it. We don't complain about it. We shine the radiant, brilliant preeminent, unstoppable light of Jesus on our own selves. We're purified by it, and we shine in the darkness. Jesus is unstoppable. Now now that I've done the best I can to lay those two things down, I want to carry on in chapter 1 of John. And I want to point out a few other things that Jesus is that we know that unfolds from this chapter and from these founding truths. Some of these things that we read about at the end of chapter 1 here are actually going to parallel who Jesus is through our story in our campus ministry. And I'm going to share that as we go. I'm going to read 
verses 43 through 51, the end of chapter 1 of John. Uh, Jesus has been uh, selecting his disciples, calling people to himself. Verse 43 carries on saying, the next day Jesus decided. Everyone say, Jesus decided. He decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. Context clue, Philip did. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly I say to to you that you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I love the Bible. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is unstoppable. Next thing I see, Jesus is sovereign. Verse 43, he decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. He he decided. This word sovereign is another word that I couldn't, I just had to use this word. A sovereign nation is a nation that, that doesn't have to consult with any other nations about the decisions they make because they're independent, they're autonomous, they're sovereign. But a sovereign God is so much greater. Jesus is God. He's sovereign. He doesn't consult with anything else about, or anyone else about the decisions he makes. There's no other God, no other idea that rivals him. He doesn't compete against anyone else. He doesn't need your permission to do what he's going to do in your life and on the earth. He's sovereign. Now we interact with him, and we can make good choices to do so, but ultimately, his choices are sovereign. He's that big, like way bigger than my brain and yours combined. He's sovereign. He doesn't need us. I think this notion since the Enlightenment, the last few hundred years, we had this idea of free will, and that's important to consider, but let's consider that God's will is infinitely more free Then all of our wills, he decides he's sovereign. He's huge. And the degree to which you can understand this is the degree to which you can rest in a trust that's way bigger than yourself so that you can declare, my flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's sovereign. Even when I stink, he's sovereign. He's good. He decides. It doesn't say here that Philip found Jesus. It says that Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found 
Philip, and he, he changed his life, turned it upside down through a simple two-word directive, follow me. That's all it took. I mean, talk about the most effective and efficient sermon in the history of mankind. He's got a convert with two words. Dude's ready to die for him, which we think he did. Follow me. Jesus is sovereign. Before you decided to follow Jesus, if you're a Christian in here, he decided to seek you out. Before you decided to come to this city or to come to this church, he planned it. Do I know how that works? No, I'm not Jesus. I don't understand his sovereignty. I trust it. He's sovereign. Before you saw him or you saw any of this stuff, and even if you're in here and you're not yet a Christian and you don't see any of this stuff, I'm just saying a bunch of religious words to you, he still sees you. Our campus ministry story undeniably involves a lot of initiative of men and decisions. It involves that. But more than anything, our story tells of Jesus' sovereignty. Let me just piece this together. In the late 1990s, Jesus decided to reach a few people. Before there was any thought of a campus ministry at Texas State, in other places through our campus ministries, he decided to reach a handsome, red-headed man named Brandon Nava, who's here with us. Everyone wave hello to B. Nav. He decided to reach him and bring him to himself at the University of Texas. And Jesus also decided to seek out a man named Morgan, who now serves as our pastor uh, in, at Mosaic in Austin. He decided to, to reach them in other campus chapters. He also, in the late 90s, when I was even younger than I am now, he decided to reach me through another campus ministry, uh, high school campus ministry in Oregon. Now, Jesus was sovereignly piecing those things together. Fast forward to 2002, our Every Nation campus chapter at the University of Houston, Jesus decided to soften the heart of their star quarterback at the University of Houston. And the students in our campus chapter got to see their quarterback come to faith. The strapping young Barrick Neely. The next year, 2003, Barrick decided to bring his talents to South Beach. Uh, the South Beach of the San Marcos River, by the way. It's Bikini Island. Uh, he brought his talents to San Marcos, but he brought something more than that. He brought a, a desire and a passion to see his new faith multiply on the campus here. And it was, it was then that Brandon and Morgan, uh, who were at the time missionaries at the University of Texas, and another man, the late Tennyson McCarty, decided to start driving down to San Marcos from Austin and start helping Barrick. They helped him gather some friends and pray. And that's when I got to meet all of them. And I met Barrick. Barrick was my first black friend. He's my first black friend. I grew up, as I said, in the heart of Caucasia. And we had a lot of interesting stories about my learning process. But the thing about Barrick and I is, is that we had almost nothing in common. But that which we had in common made us more similar to one another than we were to everyone else with whom we shared nothing else in common. 
we shared a passion to see Jesus lifted up and to see him touch young people like he touched us. And that's what united us. We became best friends. We, we uh, became roommates. And we continued to pray. We, we got help from Brandon. Uh, we got, uh, saw some supernatural healings, some prophecy. We saw all sorts of brilliant things happen as we prayed together. But the reason why I nailed down that this was mostly about Jesus' sovereignty and nothing about us is let me just tell you, y'all, we had very little faith. And I can joke about it right now to see how God has nonetheless sovereignly done great things. But I'll just take you back to one little moment, and Brandon's going to remember this. They, Morgan and Brandon had been waking up at 4.35 a.m. every Wednesday to come down to Barrick and I's house uh, to pray, pray for our campus. And one of our roommates who we'd kind of dragged into to praying with us and being a part of our ministry, his name was Dan. We called him Scoop. I don't know why we called him Scoop, but that's his name. Called, called him Scoop, and he'd wake up with us. Like we'd, I'd just like punch him on the arm like 11 times, and he'd get up with us. In the middle of the prayer meeting one morning, I remember Scoop saying, here's our prayer meeting. Lord Jesus, we don't want to be here right now. <laughs> Lord, we want to be in our beds. And I, I remember giving that head shake of, you know, the amen solidarity without saying it. Like, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize until later that, like, Brandon and Morgan did not like that. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't either. But it didn't stop him. He didn't really need our faith. He's pleased by it. But he's sovereign. He chose to do everything that he's done in your life, in this world, and on this campus because that's his sovereign will. He's huge, he's big. He is amazing even and especially when we're weak because his power is made perfect in human weakness and we gave him plenty to work with. God has always chosen to use weak young people. It's not just Philip and Nathaniel that got saved and immediately started reaching their friends. But he's done it here. Since then, it's amazing if I were to catalog all the stories of all the young people just ready to go like Similar to how Jesus said a few words, and, he was just, and, and Nathaniel and Philip were just ready to go. On this campus, story after story of, of young people who just haven't required much convincing. They're just ready to go because Jesus is sovereignly calling people out. Elisa Luevano and Shadrach and Berto and Tessa and Dan and Kristen and friends reaching friends. There's stories and names that I want to go into, but... I'm going to keep moving forward. God has always chosen to use young people. Philip and Nathaniel were youths, we believe. But they weren't just a youth group. They were the light of the church. They were the seeds of the unstoppable plan of the radiant one who had sovereignly decided to use them there. We're not a campus church. We're not a community church. We are the church that the sovereign Christ has decided that we would be, that reach young people and old people. We're not a white church. We're not a black church. We're a church that shines from the radiance of the Son of God because he's chosen to do something unique here. Now, a unique part of our story is that there's young people and there's diverse people doing something that only Jesus could get credit for. He's sovereign. Next thing I see Jesus is sneaky. This is my own word. 
Don't take this the wrong way. He's not conniving. But he'll go low-key and just surprise you all the time. Verse 46, Nathanael says, What good could come out of Nazareth? Well, only that which will blow your mind. Because Jesus' glory is made to be all the more radiant in seemingly darker places like Nazareth. What good could come out of Nazareth? Only the most scandalously large, disproportionately glorious thing. Because it comes from the Logos, the perfect one. So it doesn't really matter the context of where his light shines. His light will always overtake no matter what city. No matter if it's Nazareth or San Marcos. What good could come out of San Marcos? Isn't that a drinking town? Well, apparently Jesus ordained that places where there's just kind of greater thirst, I guess. (laughs) He wants to connect people to a greater source that really, truly quenches that thirst. Deeper well, endless springs, himself. And Jesus wants to use the foolish things of the earth, 1 Corinthians 1 says, like me and you, to shame the wise. One other operative thing I see when uh, Nathaniel says what good could come out of Nazareth is just the preposition he uses, the out of or from. What good could come out of or from Nazareth? Well, that's the thing. That's what Jesus wanted him to see, whether he saw it or not. Wonderful things happen in Nazareth. Wonderful things happen in San Marcos, but more wonderful things happen from places like these. I remember a few years into, I I graduated from college, and uh, the same year, Barrick and I got better roommates, I say. Uh, I married my wife. He married his. Uh, His wife is now the the worship director. My wife is the kids director. Uh, I went into ministry before our church was founded. I was doing campus ministry for a few years. That's what our church came out of years later. But in the middle of all that, I remember complaining to God, God, every time we, we start to get big, everyone moves away. It's like a revolving door. And God was like, yeah. Do you see it yet? Much good will come from this place. And Peter, I'm going to give you special grace to touch people in a way that you'll train them up and send them out with an anointing that won't be matched. You just have to get over yourself. I would love to tell you that that's happened already, but I'm still in the process. In the last six years alone, we've seen God send 18 of our people to the School of Campus Ministry in Nashville. Fifteen of those went into full-time ministry. Eleven of them are still in ministry right now. And the vast majority of those have been sent out from San Marcos. What good could come from San Marcos? Ask the Logos. He can do what he wants when he wants. He's sneaky. He's powerful. He's sovereign. I love what Jesus does in us. And even more than that, I love what he does from us. The last thing I see in this is my last point. Jesus is greater. Everyone say greater. Verse 50, Jesus answered Nathanael, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you still believe? Do you now believe? You will see greater things than these. Everyone say greater things. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is greater. Nathaniel caught just a small glimpse of heaven, and he was ready to go. He was ready for the adventure. He went from a doubter to a believer in one little piece of power. But I don't think that was enough. You know, our history, I've said, is, has involved miracles, and this man has been given a prophetic gift. We've seen it in others. We've seen all sorts of miracles, but we, like Nathaniel, can miss the purpose of the power and not understand what Jesus has ordained his power for and what it points to. Nathaniel was clearly missing something in verse 46 when he rejected Jesus outright because he's like, man, who could come? What good could come from Nazareth? But I think Nathaniel was also falling short of the glory of God, even in his praise when he said, you're king, you're the son of God. And Jesus wasn't content with Nathaniel simply to, to be amazed and be a little bit impressed and then fit Jesus into his pre-existing context or paradigm of what the Messiah would be. Jesus wanted to blow his paradigm completely apart, just like Jesus wants to blow your paradigm of what your life and what he is all about. Nathaniel probably grew up learning that he was a child of God. Uh, I hear that in our culture all the time, uh, that he was a Jew, and he was God's chosen one, um, and that the Messiah, the deliverer, would come and deliver them from their oppressor, who they learned was the Romans, who had overtaken Israel centuries before. Nathaniel couldn't see that the true oppressor was much more fierce than the Romans. It was the devil himself who deceives us all into following our own hearts, our own wicked schemes, our own fallenness. Nathaniel couldn't see that if he was a child of God, he was an estranged child of God, which is how we all are born, that we've fallen from God's glory and we reject him. We become enemies of God, sinners, Children of the devil is what John later says in one of his letters. Nathaniel couldn't quite see that, and Jesus was willing to show him anyway. He says to him, you think you're a believer just because you saw a little bit? Look, you're going to see heaven opened. I'll show you. Just keep following me. I'll show you that I'm much more. You'll see the angels descend and ascend on the Son of Man. Jesus was going back to a, a, a vision that Nathaniel's predecessor, Jacob, had seen years before he saw a vision of a ladder and angels going up and down. And Jesus is declaring in this moment to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you don't quite see me the way you need to see me, but I'm telling you, I'm not just someone who's going to give you a prophecy. I'm someone who will fulfill all prophecy, all promise. I am the essence of all hope. I'm the one who bridges the gap between heaven and earth. And because I have died on the cross, my blood, my perfect blood, is enough to bridge the gap between your fallenness and my holiness. I am the bridge between God and man, is what Jesus is saying. There is no other hope. I am the one who brings light to the life of of men. I am the perfect, the advocate, the advocate. And because of what I've done, Jesus is saying, you are not a child of God, but I will give you the rights to be a child of God, as he says in verse 12. John reveals that mystery through Jesus. 
And he's saying to you that there are greater things for you. Maybe you came here just to find a decent church. But Jesus wants to give you greater deliverance and to wrap you up into a greater story because Jesus is greater.